0: Welcome to the Supporting Cast. This is Eli Goldsmith. In the 2015 film Woman in Gold, Ryan Reynolds plays a 30-something lawyer named Randy Schoenberg, who takes up the case of a family friend named Maria Altman, played by Helen Mirren, who is trying to retrieve a painting from Austria that had belonged to her family as a child until being stolen by Nazis in World War II. While such a matter would not typically receive the attention of Hollywood, this was no ordinary case and no ordinary painting. Authored by the world-famous Gustav Klimt, the painting, known as The Woman in Gold, was by the late 1990s regarded by many as the Mona Lisa of Austria. In turn, Randy decided to sue the Republic of Austria citing a little-known exception to the Foreign Sovereign Immunities Act, which quickly brought the matter international attention, eventually making its way to the United States Supreme Court, where Randy argued the landmark case himself and won. In this episode, the real Randy Schoenberg tells his story. A native of Los Angeles, Randy attended Harvard School, Princeton University, and USC Law, citing the role of various educators in preparing him for the moment. For example, at the top of the notepad that Randy brought into the Supreme Court that day were written the words, quote, pause and smile, end quote, a tip from his high school speech teacher, Ted Woods, which Randy believes helped him to win over the nine justices that day. Randy Schoenberg, on how countries reckon with the sins of their past and how educating the young about the truth of our history is so essential to preventing that history from repeating. This is The Supporting Cast. the supporting cast. Thank you, glad to be here. Thank you, we're glad you're here as well, Randy. The first question I'd love to ask, earlier in the this season, we were talking a bit about what the last year has been like in terms of the pandemic for people personally. And so I wanna ask you about that, but I also, we're, we're amid this time now where people are getting vaccinated and people are talking about the word and using the word re-entry. And so I'm curious, both how the last year has been for you and your family, but also how does it feel right now to sort of be re entering, if you are, back into some sense of normalcy?
1: Well, yeah, like everybody, it's been an adjustment this past year and we had two kids who were in college and one at who's a junior at Harvard Westlake and yep, yep. and then all three of them were home and we tried to escape to the mountains. We have a place up in, in Mammoth, so we went up there for a lot, did some hiking and then Joey, who was between 10th and 11th grade, said he wanted to do something. He was going crazy and wanted to go somewhere. (laughs) And so he said, what can't we go to Europe? And at that time, last summer, things were looking pretty good in Austria, at least. Mm
0: -hmm. And
1: I had arranged several years ago to get Austrian citizenship Hmm. through my grandparents and my mom. And so, and I even got it for, for the kids. And so we decided we looked it up and it turned out we could actually fly. Everybody else was sort of barred. But if you were a citizen, you could go to Austria. So we said, Okay, wow. let's go to Austria. And so I the, the girls chickened out, but the boys, Nathan and Joey, decided to go. And we went to we went to Austria at the end of July last wow. summer for a few weeks. So that was sort of exciting and we to fly it was super scary. So we had to dress up like we were going to the moon with multiple masks and headgear. And, and that was really something else to be like that for an entire long transatlantic flight was not easy. And then, then you get into Europe and everybody there was super cavalier about everything at that time. They they didn't have a lot of cases and they thought everything was under control. And we were just coming out of California freak out, right? in In the yeah. summer. So we were afraid to go near anybody. And he was, Oh, it's no problem. You know, we have no problem at all. And after a while you, you adjust to it. So we re-entered to get back to your question a little yeah. bit there. And we were going over to people's houses for dinner and things like that. And, I could see the cases start to sort of tick up. This was last August in, in mm. Austria. And then we left and came back. And sure enough, they had then a huge wave that hit them and things got completely locked down there. And they, they had been a little bit too cavalier about it. But we came back here. And since coming back, we've been really locked down. So last week, we were finally as vaccinated as we're going to be. I hate to say fully vaccinated because it implies that nothing bad could happen. But, anyways, vaccinated as we're going to be and so we just we we started going out to restaurants outside so that's that's been our big adventure last week we went to two or three places and sat
0: outside and
1: and ate around other people and
0: uh and how did it feel did it feel nerve-wracking or did it feel good
1: uh like everybody else i think it's it's feeling good and also nervous at the same time and and you get people who are just obviously not paying any attention at all anymore and you feel sort of nervous near them but for most pe- most people are still very careful and respectful, and so like everybody else, I've become an expert epidemiologist in the last twelve months, right? Isn't that every <laughs> yep. Zoom call with all your family and friends? It's just the only topic of conversation, and everybody's an expert by now. But uh, I'm feeling okay. We still have plenty of toilet paper, and uh, we're <laughs> good to know <laughs> we're we're ready if it if it ticks back up again. But I'm hoping that things stay on the current trajectory and we get a little bit normalcy. I really feel bad for the kids in school right now it's just very yeah. very it's been very very tough for our our three kids and I'm sure for all the kids who are, are still in school right now to be sort of locked up at home with your parents is bad enough to begin <laughs> with but to not be able to go out and, and see your friends and, and hang out with people is just really not fun so the, so our kids are now enjoying having a little more freedom and uh, hopefully things will stay stay safe.
0: Yeah, they're quite good in LA right now, so we're we're crossing our fingers. You mentioned your grandparents, your Austrian grandparents, and I know you have a famous Austrian grandfather, Arnold Schoenberg, who you can talk about, but you've done some work mapping your own genealogy uh, as a family, uh, your own Austrian genealogy, but you haven't really stopped there. You've been very involved in Jewish-Austrian genealogy, and so I wonder if you could talk a bit about all that you are doing in that area.
1: Sure, I started like a lot of people do when they were young with a grade school project and I sort of joke Is that like, right? huh. Yeah, I mean it's like the typical third grade family tree project and I went and asked my grandmother and got this all this information about my mom's side of the family and there was a book on my father's father, the composer, and so I got mm-hmm. stuff on his family and I came back to school and most people had, you know, father, mother, sister, dog, right? And I had this enormous family tree that went back generations. And wow! And like like I like to say, you know, when you're a kid, eight years old, and you find out you're better at something than other kids, that becomes your thing. I wish it had been baseball for me or, mm. or <laughs> basketball, but instead it was genealogy. And so since then, I've been the family genealogist and now I'm 54 and I'm still doing it because one of the... Great things about genealogy is it's sort of an endless jigsaw puzzle. So I just spent a lot of time uh, working on my own extended family tree, but also everybody else's, because it turns out if you expand your horizons beyond what you think of as your family and just sort of consider everybody in an area of your family, it, it turns out everybody's actually very closely related. Uh, hmm. Especially if, you, if you're if you talking about sort of Jewish families in Austria-Hungary, which is where my all my family is from. So it, no matter where you're working, you're going to find connections. And there's a, a program that I'm very involved in called geni.com, yeah. G-N-I.com, which is a world family tree. The idea is sort of like Wikipedia, sort of one family tree for everybody. It's a collaborative tree project. And there are millions of users and 150 million Connected people on this big family tree, and I just work on there all the time. I'm a volunteer curator, and and very active, and 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 do other things also in in uh, Jewish genealogy in terms of conferences, and and I'm on the board of a few organizations. So, so yeah, that's been my thing for a long time, and mm-hmm. thanks to the Klimt case, I have time to to spend on that, which is uh, a passion of mine, and I, I really enjoy it. It's it's fun. I'm learning thing new things all the time, and it's a good entree into history. I think. example I give, and and maybe it's not a good example because I haven't dug too deeply, but when you're in high school, you learn about Napoleon, right? And Napoleon, there's these big battles like Waterloo and Austerlitz. And it it would have made a a difference to me, I think, if I had known that my family was actually living in Austerlitz at the time of the Battle of Austerlitz. Wow, you get that personal connection, right, to to the history. And that's just an example. So when you're going back into the 1800s, 1700s, 1600s, and you discover that your family was in a spot where there was something else sort of interesting going on, it makes it more personal and therefore more interesting to people. So anyway, I find that constantly. I'm very lucky. I have a very deep family tree on all sides, and so I'm able to make those type of connections quite a lot.
0: Yeah. My parents, uh, my dad through 23andMe, found out recently within the past year that he had a half-brother that he had no idea about, and he's in his mid-70s. And my mom, who's uh, my dad is is Jewish, my mom is not. She has family in Estonia, and we've been able to go back there and find out a great deal about property that her family owned back in Estonia before the Russians took over and so forth. So it's really fascinating, and again, brings you closer to that history. Absolutely, absolutely. Yeah. Now I want to, you mentioned the Klimt case, and there was a movie <laughs> made about that case where Ryan Reynolds played you <laughs> and Helen Mirren, played a character named Maria Altman. And so I'd love to kind of go back to the beginning of that story, and then we can go back to kind of your beginnings. But where and under what circumstances did you first meet Maria Altman?
1: So Maria uh, and her husband Fritz were the closest friends of my mom's parents, Eric and Trudit Zeisel. My mom's father was also a composer, Eric Zeisel, and my grandmother Hmm. had studied to be a lawyer in Vienna and came here and ended up teaching Latin at uh, Palisades High School. Hmm. They were best friends with Maria and Fritz. Fritz Altman and my mom's father had known each other in in Vienna. Both families managed to escape the Nazis and ultimately by the early 40s were here in Los Angeles. And uh, by then they each had had their first child in 1940. And so my mom, who was an only child, sort of grew up with the Altman kids. There were four Altman kids as Hmm. her sort of surrogate siblings. And they were just on family trips and things like that with with them. And then later on, when I was around, they were at all the big birthday parties and things like that for my grandmother. So I knew Maria growing up a little bit Hmm. and Fritz. And uh, she called me then sort of out of the blue in 1998. And she tried to reach my my mom first because she was still in touch with my mom after my grandparents Mm -hmm. had died and couldn't reach her. So she called me directly and said, I just got this call from Vienna about this new law. Could you help me figure out what to do? And so, of course, I said yes. I, I knew hmm. the Klimt paintings. I had seen the portrait of her aunt, Adela Blochbauer, which is the sort of famous one, the gold portrait of Adela. A woman in gold. The woman in gold, exactly. And I I remember as a teenager going to Vienna when I went for the first time my parents brought me and my mom. You go into the big museum there and my mom said, oh, you see that picture on the wall? That's Maria Altman's aunt. That's your your grandmother's friend's aunt. So I knew the hmm. picture, but I didn't know I didn't even know that her family had owned the painting. Right. I just knew that it was a famous picture. And after she called, how old was I? About thirty-one years old, and or almost thirty-two. And I, I said, sure, I'll help out. And, and that's how it all started. It, it, it didn't know at the time that it would take eight years <laughs> to get to the end of it, but it was, it was an amazing journey with Maria. And she was, sort of the last one left of my grandparents' generation. She was a little bit younger, and so she would tell me stories about my mom growing up, and my grandmother, and my even my great-grandmother, she would tell stories about that type of thing. So she was really that last link to the past for me. So it was really a, a, a wonderful thing to be able to practice law, which was my profession, but also do this sort of family type yeah. uh, a- activity with Maria Altman. And...
0: and so her family had owned the painting, and it had been stolen by the Nazis. And so her interest was in retrieving that painting and having it returned to her family.
1: The paintings had belonged to her uncle and her aunt had died in the 1920s and and her uncle was able to flee uh, and ended up in in Switzerland and Maria and her siblings, she had four older siblings, they all fled and ended up after the war in Canada and Los Angeles, so Vancouver and Los Angeles. So when her uncle died, right as the war ended, uh, it was their task to try to retrieve his property. And uh, mm. he had been very wealthy, he ran a sugar company, so there was, there was a lot of things in his estate, but they hired a lawyer to try to find things. And uh, with the Klimt paintings, the issue became that Maria's aunt, who was in the painting, right, the one who was in the portrait, she had died in the yeah. 20s, and she had left a will asking her husband to give the paintings to this museum after he died. But of course the Nazis had taken everything before he died, and, and his last mm. will didn't say anything about a gift. But still, the Austrians took the position that these paintings should go to the museum. And so their lawyer, Maria's lawyer at the time in Vienna, made a deal that he agreed not to claim the Klimt paintings in order to get an agreement from the Austrians that they could get other property out of the country. The Austrians were doing this sort of extortionate thing with Austrian Jewish families after the war, where they wouldn't let them take any property out of the country. Uh-huh. And so he made a deal. He said, OK, I won't, won't fight over this, but let me take some other things out which worked. Uh, But what happened then 50 years later, there was a big to-do, and a journalist did a whole series of articles showing how Jewish families, the ones who had managed to survive and recovered property in Austria, had been extorted by the Austrian government in the post-war period. And so Austria Hmm. had passed a new law saying they were going to reverse that. So that's when Maria contacted me. And Mm. so we initially we thought, okay, we'll just wait for them to return these paintings under the new law. But the Austrians decided in the following year not to return the paintings because they said that they had been donated already in the 1920s by Maria's aunt, uh, which mm. didn't appear to be true. And so the question is, okay, what do you do then? So first mm. we tried to go to court in Austria, but that was prohibitively expensive and not possible. And so I very naively looked to see if Maria could file a lawsuit in Los Angeles where she had lived since the early 1940s. And she yeah. was a citizen already by 1945, and and I thought, why can't she sue in Los Angeles? So there's something in our law called the Foreign Sovereign Immunities Act of 1976, mm. which, not surprisingly, if you, if you listen to the title, it says a foreign state is immune. In U.S. courts, you can't sue a foreign state. But there's some exceptions, and one of the exceptions mm. had to do with property that was taken in violation of international law, and so I thought there was huh. a possibility that she could sue here and... Uh, my firm did not want me to do this. They were not <laughs> in the business of tilting at windmills and, and suing foreign countries over yeah. paintings and things like that. And I ended up leaving the law firm. And uh, our second child, Nathan, was born that summer. And right after that, I opened up my own office and filed the lawsuit for Marie Altman against Austria. To recover these paintings. So that was a little bit crazy.
0: And the, the official case was?
1: Yeah, it was Maria Allman versus Republic of Austria. And exactly. Actually, I, I found an email I wrote to Maria at that time. I said, you know, I just hope we can keep the case in the public eye because it's a political case. And, and maybe in Austria, the government will change and we'll be able to do something. That was it was as much a PR move as anything else. And Austria, of course, hired a big law firm and they tried to dismiss the case. And one of their arguments was that this Foreign Sovereign Immunities Act of 1976 couldn't be applied to a case that concerned events in the 30s and 40s. It was mm. impermissibly retroactive. and <laughs> uh, so. But fortunately, the district court judge denied their motion. So I was feeling very good, but they had a right to appeal because it was a sovereign immunity question right away. And that went up to the Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals. So I, I argued there for the first time in Pasadena in front of three judges wow. and Everybody thought we were going to lose, but miraculously, they ruled in our favor also. So at that point, everything looked very good. But then the U.S. government decided they didn't like the precedent we had just set. So they actually filed a brief asking the Ninth Circuit to reverse the decision, which fortunately they didn't do. But then mm-hmm. the U.S. Supreme Court decided to take up the case and... Uh, wow. Wow. And then all bets were off. Uh, every, everybody <laughs> knows that the Ninth Circuit gets reversed like 110% of the time. And so everybody was sure that I was going to lose. But uh... yeah,
0: so so before we get to that, <laughs> before we get to the Supreme Court sure. case, I want to get to the, the personal side of it, because you said sure. you had left your your big firm and you had started your own practice and you had taken on this case. And the movie at least talks about a bit of the challenges of that to you personally, because you were taking on a pretty big risk to take this case. And so can you talk, before getting to the landmark Supreme Court case, what was going on with you personally?
1: When Maria called me in 1998, I had been married about a year and a half, and we had our first child, Dora, who was, what is she, class of 16 or something like that. But she was born in 1998 in March, and we had moved into our first real home of Mandeville Canyon that summer, and then Maria called me. So that's when it started. And then two years later, when I went out on my own, our son Nathan was born. So he's class of 18. So he was just born in July 2000. And by the time we got to the Supreme Court, Pam was pregnant again. We had moved into a new home to fit the, wow. the extra child. Uh, we moved in, I guess, December, January. I argued the case in February of 2004. And Joey, who's in the class of 2022, was born in April. And the decision came in June. <laughs> so, wow. to give you an idea. So so I was in that stage of my life. Yeah, and There's no perfect time to make big changes and do different things, you, you realize, as, you, as you're growing up. It seems, in retrospect, like, oh my God, I really moved houses right in the middle of this, or I really changed my job and everything with all these kids, but there's there's never a good time for any of that. And I just sort of leaped ahead. My wife, Pam, was very supportive, fortunately. Yeah. And, and so I, I felt safe enough to do that and tried to go out on my own Going out from a big firm to going on your own, it's I I say it's like pulling out an IV, right? Because you you're used to getting this sort of monthly infusion of course uh, yeah. into your bank account, and then all of a sudden you're on your own. I think I made twenty thousand dollars the first year, <laughs> so I was not doing too well, uh, but yeah. but I I you know was able to build up and then earn enough to afford to do Maria's case sort of on the side for several years and until it it became a real thing.
0: Well, and you know, I'm I'm in this stage of life, sort of. We we bought a home in the fall. I have a two and a half year old. We have another on the way, and it's a time where you're you're trying to mitigate some risk because we've got preschool to pay for, and you're kind of starting to build your life in a different way. Why take on this case? Why take that risk? What was so important to you about this case?
1: Well, I, initially, what I was still at the big firm when I was doing it, and and I wanted to help my grandmother's friend, but then then i really believed in it i really yeah. thought that the austrians had done the wrong thing in keeping these paintings i had collected all of the documents and it showed a pretty clear picture i thought uh, even in the 1920s maria's father who was the lawyer in the family had filed a document saying that the will wasn't binding and the paintings belonged to ferdinand that type of thing so for hmm. them to come and say no that she gave them the paintings in, in the will and that's it you know and nothing nothing that happened afterward mattered really upset me as, as someone who, you know, came from the same Austrian Jewish community. It was very upsetting to me that they would sort of ignore what had actually happened. And so it became very personal, I guess, for me, you know, as well as Maria, we were both comfortable being Americans and living in the United States, but part of us was still very much attached to, to Austria and, and wanting to correct the injustice that had happened during that time.
0: And so let's talk about the case. So yeah. the case goes to the Supreme Court <laughs> as, again, the Republic of Austria versus Altman. Uh, tell us about the case and how it went.
1: Uh, before I get there, I, I, well, I want to remember because this is a Harvard Westlake podcast. Interestingly enough, in that term of the Supreme Court, 2003, 2004, there were three Harvard school grads who argued cases. Uh, is that right? In, in the court. Yeah. And there, there are two of them from the class of 82, and I'm class of 84. So we had all sort of the same training from Ted Woods, who, who ran the speech and debate program ah. for Harvard School at that time. And so it, it all went up there. And I'll, I'll tell you what happened to my case. I Everybody thought I was going to lose. It was sort of a crazy case, right? We were suing a foreign country to recover <laughs> paintings that had never left Vienna under this almost never used exception to the Foreign Sovereign Immunities yeah. Act. And you're in
0: your thir- mid-30s, early 30s? Uh, yeah,
1: was, I, of course, had no experience in the Supreme <laughs> Court and all of that. So I, uh, I got up there. It was February, uh, you know, sort of cold. And I remember having almost a gallows humor going in, right? Because, like, it was ridiculous, uh, the whole thing. And it's very formal in the Supreme Court. And so the other lawyers went first. But by the time I got up to speak, it seemed that they were really challenging the other side a little bit. And so I, you know, I was feeling a little good. And so I got up and you don't give a speech in the Supreme Court, you try to sort of have an outline, but they interrupt you with questions, right? So I I said, Mm. there are four grounds for affirming the Ninth Circuit. Ground one is, and I said one sentence, and I got interrupted by Justice Souter, who was probably (laughs) the smartest judge on the court at that time. And he he started asking me this long, convoluted question. It was like da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da. Like that's all I heard in my head. And I had no idea what he had just said. Absolutely none. And you know, this is just seconds into starting. It's all recorded. I can't make this up. You can go to Oyez.org and listen to it. And so you can hear me on the tape. I said, Um uh I'm I'm sorry, Your Honor, I don't think I understood the question. Could you please rephrase it? Right? And there's these gasps in the audience. But but all the other justices smiled at me as if to say, oh, thank goodness you asked. We didn't understand it either. You know, He does this all the time. There (laughs) he goes again, right? And it was just a perfect icebreaker, just completely by accident, because I had started out by establishing my credibility. I wasn't going to pretend that I understood a question that made no sense, right? Exactly. And and I wasn't going to pretend to be the world's expert on sovereign immunity and retroactivity. I mean, these are very arcane legal topics that people don't even learn in law school. And And so I just was, who was I? I was like this kid from L.A. representing my grandmother's best friend in this crazy case. And so the rest of the argument just went like a dream. And uh, they asked questions. And if I didn't know, I would say I didn't know. and I tried to answer as best I could. And I sort of floated out of the courtroom. I really thought that it went well. And my my dad, who was a retired judge, for the first time said, ooh, you might even have a chance of winning, (laughs) right? Wow. But I came back home to L.A., and the legal newspaper, the Daily Journal, had a big headline saying, court likely to reverse Altman case. And it was all about how we were going to lose. And wow. so I called up the journalist because I said, you know, I was thinking to myself, at least he could have said, Randy did a great job, but court likely to reverse, right? I mean, everybody thought I was going <laughs> to lose anyway, but no one had witnessed this amazing experience at the Supreme Court. And yeah. uh, so I called him up and, and said, you know, can you do me a favor? When the decision comes down, the journalists are there every day, so they hear first. I said, here's my phone number, can you give me a call? And so, sure enough, Joey was born then in April, and then in June, we're waiting for the decision, and and I'm making breakfast for the kids, and there's this journalist on the phone. He says, real serious voice, he says, Hello, this is Dave Pike. I said, Okay, tell me the bad news, right? Because I was expecting to lose. And he said, No, you won! 6 3 decision by Justice Stevens, and, uh, you know, I can't even remember the rest of it because I probably dropped the phone. Oh my God. Uh, so I raced over to Maria's and we celebrated. Our kids came over. And then a few hours later, we realized what did we just win? We had won the right to start the lawsuit. Remember, we were just in the beginning <laughs> phase of the lawsuit. Uh, and it was yeah. now, you know, year six of this, of this whole ordeal. So that, that was really an amazing, amazing, amazing experience for me. But I, before we go on from that, I wanted to mention. So all three of the Harvard school grads who argued that term won. Uh, all three Is that of right? We were 3-0 and oh that that year.
0: And I guess we can get to your Harvard School experience in a moment, but were there things that Ted Woods taught you that you used in front of the Supreme Court that day?
1: Yeah. So so any alum listening to this from that time period, every single Harvard School kid had to take speech in ninth grade yeah. from mm-hmm. Ted Woods. Okay. So we all learned this. And one of the things he, he said was, pause and smile, right? When you yes. start. I've heard this pause from other alums and of smile, that era, right? Yep, so of yep. course, I was thinking, I like I had a notepad and was like pause and smile to remind myself when I went to the Supreme Court, and I'm sure the other two, I'm sure Stuart, uh, Raphael, and Jeff Lampkin, who were the other two, did the same thing. We were trained by Ted Woods to to have that presence in the beginning, to pause and smile, and then start into our argument, but not you know not to just sort of rush in. And it worked, I guess, <laughs> for all three of us. So wow. I have Ted Woods to thank.
0: <laughs> wow. And so finally, I mean, this was, you said, the beginning of the process, but eventually Maria earned the right to have the painting returned to her in the United States. Is that right?
1: Right. Uh, So we, we, after about another year and a half, Austria agreed, we did a mediation and then they agreed to do an arbitration in Vienna. And at first Maria didn't want to do that. But I said, Maria, you know, you're 89 years old, and the case could go up to the Supreme Court again. And even if we won, they could ignore the judgment because there's no treaty between the US and and Austria on enforcing judgments. And I said, if you want this over in your lifetime, we have to take a chance and and go back to Austria and do this. And, And so I went back to Vienna, we had an arbitration. It's not like in the mm-hmm. movie with a big audience and everything. It was a private arbitration, and it took them yeah. months and months to make a decision. But finally, uh, finally, we got the decision. And we had won. They, had, they agreed with our position, which was the same as, as Maria's father's position in 1926, which was the will was not written in a way to be binding on her husband. And the husband had owned the paintings. He had a right to do with them what he wanted, and he didn't give them to the Austrian Gallery. They were traded in exchange for export permits for other property after the war. And so, so suddenly after eight years of this quixotic quest for these paintings, we had five amazing Klimt paintings and we had to figure out what to do with them. So I, I called up uh, Stephanie Barron. Uh, I think her, her son also, I think went to Harvard Westlake and Mm -hmm. uh, I called her and she was a curator at LACMA. I said, how'd you like to have a an exhibit at LACMA. She said, "Ooh, that sounds great." I she said, "When?" I said, "Well, right now, right? Help us get these paintings out of out of town, out of Vienna." And so LACMA and and Stephanie Barron helped bring the paintings then to Los Angeles. And that for me wow. was was the great moment because there was Maria, the last one left. She was the baby of her family, so she was the last of her generation, and she had her kids and her grandkids and her nieces and nephews, and they were all there together in this mm. room with these paintings and they had they had originally been in just one room in her uncle's home in Vienna and that's how she remembered them growing up and so just to have that sort of recreated for her was was an amazing amazing experience it's, I still sort of pinched myself that it was even possible.
0: Yeah, and that's a moment that the the movie does quite well. I think I know they took some liberties in various ways to make it more cinematic and to have that courtroom <laughs> moment, right? The Ryan Reynolds, yeah, winning yeah. the case.
1: Not everything is is true in the movie, but uh, you know, it's all based. <laughs> exactly. it's all based on true things. So, so. yeah,
0: <laughs> and the the flashback that Maria has at the very end of finally flashing back to seeing the painting in her aunt and uncle's home as a child is very moving. Yeah, the no, it's, the they
1: really did a, a terrific job, and you know, I still the movie was released in. 2015, I think something like that. And I still get contacted by people because it'll be on TV in Brazil or Spain or, or wherever Ireland. And people will Google me and find me and send me messages. So that's how I know when it's being shown. But, but it's still getting shown, you know, many years later. It's, 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 uh, they did, they did a terrific job. That was also something, even though growing up in Los Angeles, I didn't have any, any real experience in, in film and, and movie stuff. And, uh, yeah. and that I was also equally lucky because I think most, most films don't get that far. They don't get made, or if they're made, they're not distributed the same way, or even if they are released, they fold right away. And this was one of the most successful films of that year. That's uh, right. It lasted, I think, two months in the theaters and, and that type of thing. So, so it was really, uh, an, an amazing, amazing experience.
0: So now I want to go back to kind of your beginnings here in LA. So you grew up in LA, you said your father was a judge and you, went to public school before coming to Harvard school. Is That's that right?
1: correct. I went to Kenter yeah. Canyon School, which is my mm. grandfather moved to Brentwood in, before my dad was born in 1937. So when, when most of the big lots there were vacant mm. they moved out there and he taught at UCLA. and so I grew up there in that in the old family house and Kenter Canyon was our local school. A lot of us at that year went uh, to Harvard school from from Kenter
0: and at harvard school you were involved you did play baseball i believe and you also involved, I did not Oh play you did baseball. not play baseball I,
1: wish, oh, okay. I, I said i wish i were <laughs> had been good at baseball i played a little tennis and uh, that's probably my, my best sports are ping pong and skiing, but those are not, not ones you can do on campus so much.
0: So. Hence the time in Mammoth yes. uh, this year. <laughs> yes. But you were in debate. And I know that the Harvard school had a tremendous debate program in your They era.
1: did. They did. <laughs> Despite me, they had a, had a good program. I, say that the, uh, I was debate squad captain and also editor of the newspaper, the Har- Harvard News, it was called. But I became debate squad captain a little early because there had been a incident with the class ahead of us and, and people got kicked out of the team. And so I was sort of uh. thrust into that position and it a little bit hurt our, our standing because we didn't have a really good senior team that the year I was a junior. And so, so I didn't have uh, the most successful debate career, but I was, I was relatively successful. And I got to go to nationals in student Congress, mm. which was an, uh, an experience and it, it was a big part of my Harvard school experience. You know, the one thing I've noticed that's different now than then back then the sky was the limit. You could basically do as many activities as you wanted to, right, uh, and there right. was no—you didn't have to take classes to to do it. You could really be involved because there were only a hundred and something kids in each yeah. class, and they needed boys and they needed as many bodies as they could. So I could I could do everything. Now nowadays, I don't think that would be possible necessarily at, at uh, harvard West No, there's too much.
0: Specialization, right? Yeah,
1: a little bit. I, w- I was much more of a, a generalist, and and uh, yeah. and really took advantage of Harvard School at that time. I think some of the people, some of my classmates, didn't like it as much, but I was really, it was a very good school for me. I was a good student, but also really interested in all of these extracurricular activities, and I and I could really dig into those, and that that was, it was just great, perfect for me, perfect setup for me.
0: And other than Ted Woods, were there other teachers at Harvard that were influential to you at that time? Oh, or was Ted the guy?
1: No, I, I, I wouldn't say that Ted even was the most influential, because he was more of a speech guy and I was a debate guy, and, and uh, ah. the good thing was that he didn't care about debate, so he just let us do whatever we wanted, which again, caused some <laughs> problems for the class ahead of me. But, but uh, <laughs> I learned that lesson and, and behaved well enough. So we were given a lot of freedom. Um, Mr. Lander was a history teacher who also supervised the newspaper and got me involved in that as a mm-hmm. as a ninth grader, and I went on to be editor-in-chief. And that also, we had almost 100% autonomy. I mean, we we're almost completely unsupervised, I would say, which was great. It was a good experience because we could be really responsible for everything and not having the teachers holding our hands and telling us what to do all the time. And that we made mistakes sometimes, and we, we learned the consequences of those, those mistakes. I think it was... It was actually a very good thing. We were given a lot of independence. I was a math guy also, despite the debate and mm. newspaper. So people like Mr. Carlson were influential there. And I just enjoyed a lot of, a lot of different things. And I was, uh, I know you went to Princeton too. So how did I get into yep. Princeton? I, I figured if when I applied, I should have, even though I was really good in math and physics and I, you know, with debate and newspaper and, and things like that, that the best person to do my college recommendation would have to be an English teacher, right? Because they write the best. So I mm. so I had my, my teacher, Mrs. Wardlaw, who had had me, I think in eighth grade and also uh, senior year, do my teacher recommendation. She was such a <laughs> wonderful writer that she got me in. <laughs> she got me into Princeton.
0: So, <laughs> so that, you think it's her? It was, I was all her. I, was, yeah.
1: I, I, I credit myself for picking her to do the recommendation, but, uh, but yeah. <laughs> Sounds no, like
0: you were pretty involved <laughs> as well. <laughs>
1: A little bit. I, um, did, I had a I had a good resume, I guess they would say these days.
0: Yeah. So then your Princeton experience, what was that like, and did you continue with debate or other similar? I didn't activities actually. There? I did
1: newspaper. There was a weekly newspaper oh. I became news editor of, and then but I had to give that up when I went abroad to study German in Berlin. So I studied at math. Hmm. I was a math major, and I I went to Berlin for a semester, which I sort of half joked that the best thing I did at Princeton was to leave and go to Berlin for six months, but oh. it really did. Influenced my life because I learned German well enough that when, fifteen years later, when Maria Altman contacted me, I could handle all of these documents in German ah. and and deal with the people in Austria in that way. So that really was a uh, was a good a good move <laughs> for me. But yeah. uh, it was math was very hard. By the mm-hmm. time I decided my major and. And right after that, I hit the wall, right? So most people hit the wall in math, right? They, it's usually like eighth grade or ninth grade, right? They're good until you're not good all of a sudden. And unfortunately for me, my not good was was junior year of college, right? So I was yeah. doing fine. And then wham, couldn't really do much more. And so I realized that that wasn't going to be something I could pursue after college. And that's when I started thinking of going to law school and, and following, I guess, in my father's footsteps since he was a judge.
0: And so you returned back to Southern California. Yeah, I went. To, I
1: went to USC Law School. I actually lived right next to UCLA in my grandmother's old house. My grandmother had passed away that summer, mm. so I moved into her house, but then commuted all the way to USC. Unfortunately, but I had a good a good experience at USC and had some good professors there. Erwin uh, Chemerinsky, who later went on, I think he's the dean of the of Berkeley's Law School now, mm. and he was a, he's a great professor. Anybody who took a bar review course in Southern California during that time, had him for civil procedure. And uh, he also did constitutional law. And he really uh, was a wonderful person. And when I went to the Supreme Court, he volunteered to do a practice session, a moot court, it's called. So you have a sort of practice argument like the one I ultimately told you about and, and did. Yeah. But I had not prepared very much because this was sort of the first one. And I wanted to see, OK, what do I need to do? And so I went, uh, went to USC and did this moot court and, and Erwin Chemerinsky was there. And you could tell he was very disappointed and thought <laughs> there's no way that this kid is going to be able to handle it at the Supreme Court. And, and I was just disorganized. And, and he told me, you have to have an outline and you have to do these things. Mm. And, mm. and so I took that to heart. And a few weeks later, I had a, I, like I had a much better experience. So I have to thank him for wow. that. And there was one other professor of international law named Rip Smith. Who was really mm-hmm. nice, and I had taken courses from him. And you know, there are not many people you can speak to when you're dealing with these very esoteric issues of international law. And and he was one, yeah. so I could call him up and say, "What do you think about this idea?" And he would point me in the right direction. So so I had a few good mentors there, also, uh, who helped me get through.
0: And so then you go into law, and you uh, kind of join a practice, and then eventually, five ten years later, you meet Marie Altman, and and the story is written from there. So I'm curious, you said you studied abroad in Berlin and how impactful that was. Berlin, and I've only been there once, strikes me as a place that reckons with the sins of its past, right? There are many monuments and museums that talk very openly about the Holocaust. You've been very involved with the Los Angeles Museum of the Holocaust here in Los Angeles. I'm curious about how the Klimt case relates to this larger theme of countries reckoning with mm. their own histories, especially when it's a history that they maybe should be sh- shameful of, and that there's so much relevance to things that happened in, in our own country's history. How do you think about how that case relates to that overall theme as we think about the history of persecuted people uh, in the world?
1: That's a great question. You know, When I went to Berlin in 1987, the the city was still divided. There was a wall. It was still mm. sort of an occupied city with the American sector on one side and, and East Germany surrounding it. It was like an island. And contrary to what you experienced, there actually wasn't that much uh, in terms of ah, monuments. There yeah, this
0: were... would have been in the mid-2000s or so when I was there.
1: Yeah, I remember being on a bus in Berlin. I had to take a bus to, to school, and there was this—I You know, I was 20, right? So there was someone who looked like, let's say, 40— sort of long hair, a little bit hippie-like. And he was mm-hmm. he was speaking very loudly with this older woman who must have been in her 80s in the bus and sort of they were back and forth and, and he was sort of berating her. And at one point he said, you know, I'm sure you didn't know anything or you didn't see anything. You know, you're that type that uh, didn't know about Auschwitz and things like that. And they were, you know, unaware that two rows behind them was this Jewish kid, right, who had who my grandparents, my dad's parents had fled from Berlin in May of 33. And it yeah. it felt yeah. so crazy and awkward and, you know, that I was witnessing. But so when you talk about sort of confronting, they they were still confronting their past. They still had a lot of these mm. older women who were who were war widows because so many men had died during World War II who were yeah. still there. And that, that's past by now. People are more comfortable with it uh, in Germany and in Austria, too, which which has a bad rap also for not confronting its past uh, and, and not dealing with it. But in terms of like my, my work for the L.A. Museum of the Holocaust, or it's called the Holocaust Museum of Los Angeles now, I, was, I, I rebuilt yeah. the museum. It was an old museum, started in the 60s here, really the oldest in the country. And they needed a new home and so while i was involved in maria's case actually before i won the case i had agreed to be president of the museum and they were trying to build a new That's building right. and then when i won i was able to to help out with the building also and wow. so i ended up inserting myself into the redesign process and really designed the permanent exhibit for the museum with our with our board and and so I had a chance to really deal with that question of how do how do you deal with the past? How do you how do you try to teach it? And,
0: yeah, and, yeah. And,
1: but in, if you expand larger, sort of how how do countries deal with that? Uh, it's not easy, right? It's not easy in the United States. Uh, it's taken right. until a few years ago, and I haven't been to Washington yet for us to even have an African American history museum on the Mall in Washington. There was a, a Holocaust right. museum that was built. And opened in when is it around two thousand or so? But they didn't even have an African American museum until over a decade after that, and and that's shocking, right? I mean, because you think of how important the African American community is in the history of slavery is in our country that we didn't have yep. a space that was designed to to talk about that or teach about that in Washington is shocking to me. And, and I'm glad they've rectified it. There's also one for Native Americans now, I think. And I think it's important to teach the history. We see even today how present the history can be. That's one of the themes of Woman in Gold is that the history really never really leaves us and, and has to be retaught yeah. to each generation. And And I feel very strongly that that's true, that, that people tend to forget. And so it's yeah. the job of those of us who want to remember the past to build institutions that can educate in that way. And whether it's a school uh, or something else like a museum, I think it's it's extremely important to to remind people that there is this history so that they aren't trapped into a, an endless loop of repeating it.
0: Right. I mean, this is part of what has happened in the last year, if you think about the American South and, you know, that there were still monuments to Confederate generals. And not that we need to bury that that existed, but to glorify those that perpetuated slavery also seems not the best way to educate the next generation. Right.
1: So in, in Vienna also, there's a, I mean, each each of these cases is a difference. We went to Princeton and they had a big debate over Woodrow Wilson, and we don't have to get into the That's politics right. of that. But in Vienna, for example, they have a monument and many, many monuments, I think they're 14 or 15 to a mayor, who was very, very popular uh, at the turn of the century. Around the time that Klimt was painting, or actually the time that Klimt was painting the famous portraits of Adele Blochbauer, there was a a mayor named Karl Lueger, And he was a virulent anti-Semite who ran on an anti-Semitic platform. To give you an idea, he was so anti-Semitic that the emperor twice rejected him as mayor. In other words, he was elected and the emperor wouldn't allow him to take his position because he was so anti-Semitic. And the emperor was not the most Jewish-friendly person in the world. But even <laughs> yeah. for him, it was too bad. And If you read his speeches, he was the model then that Hitler followed later on because Hitler was also in Vienna at that same time listening to this guy. Wow. And yet they have monuments to him all over the place because he was a very successful mayor at a very successful time for Vienna. So uh, even Jewish families ended up liking him because they all prospered <laughs> during his time. And so there are monuments all over the place. In Vienna. And one of them now is covered in graffiti and they're not quite sure what to do with it because people are pointing out that it's it's sort of inappropriate to have this big monument to this former mayor and and city leader in the center of town. But there are literally dozens of monuments to him all over the place. And part of the, the famous ring which is the boulevard around uh, old city of Vienna was named after him. They they changed the name to the University Ring. Of course, the university mm. was also very anti-Semitic <laughs> and a hotbed of Nazism. <laughs> so the history is complicated like that. And and part of right. what makes me ambivalent is that I sort of like seeing that guy Loeger in Vienna because it hmm. for me it's evidence of how little has changed. Right, how they haven't uh. really confronted the past. Right, so if they got rid of the statue, they could sort of pretend that they've moved on.
0: That anti-Semitism no longer exists. It's the
1: same when you go in the South and you see the Capitol building with the Confederate flag. It's right. just obvious that they haven't really come to grips with it. Now, you can pull down the Confederate flag. Hmm. Does that change the underlying facts that, that the people there haven't hmm. come to grips with it? So part of me likes to have those old symbols to point to, to say, see, you, you really haven't done your work yet that,
0: to bring it out of bring, the shadows to,
1: to yeah. well to to put the the bad history where it belongs and really reconcile yourself with the fact that that person who people think of as a hero was not a hero they were actually bad people and, and it's happening all over europe now where a lot of the former yeah. communist countries are rehabilitating their anti-communist nazi allied heroes so that's happening in budapest and it's happening in Lithuania, so Hungary, Lithuania, and a lot of the eastern countries have rehabilitated their Nazi leaders because they were anti-communist, and the communists are, are the sort of the bad guys, and anyone who was anti-communist must be good, even if they were Nazis and killed all the Jews. So history can be very, very complicated, and it's not complex. it's not always so simple, and and so you need to have spaces, I think, to teach about these things and learn from them, and that that's what what I tried to do in the Holocaust Museum museum. in Pan Pacific Park. I I hope uh, people continue to go down there and and learn from it.
0: Well, Randy, before we go, there are a few standard questions as part of the supporting cast, and they relate to Los Angeles, where you were born and raised and live today. Uh, We are known for our movies, our food, and our climate. So the first question is, what is Randy Schoenberg's favorite movie? <laughs> so
1: so I can't pick woman in gold, right? My, you can pick my woman standard gold. <laughs> answer when when I met my wife Pam, I went to this sort of mixer type thing. We went around the tables like what's your favorite movie? And the, and typical for those type of things, the woman next to me when it got to her, she said, Oh, I don't have a favorite. <laughs> so if you're in a, mm. a mixer for you know twenty somethings, you you gotta have a favorite. So my favorite at that, at yep. that time. Uh, it was sort of half a joke. I liked Bedknobs and Broomsticks, which was my favorite as a mm. kid growing up. And it's it's a pretty corny movie if you if you go back and look at it now. But uh, I think it was the first to have sort of mixed live action animation. Actually, it's one of these sort of Disney movies, uh, a yeah. little like Mary Poppins. But but in the end, they're they're sort of armor that that marches without people. And I think technologically, actually, it's an interesting movie if you look on Wikipedia. But that, that was always my go-to. Right now, I'm not sure if I have a favorite at the moment that, that isn't. So I'm going to go with Bedknobs and Broomsticks.
0: What is your favorite meal in Los Angeles, Ooh. either out at a restaurant or something that you and Pam... So make Pam and I
1: just went to... We sort of picked as our, our first place to go, In yeah. of the Seventh Ray, which is this sort of romantic used to be a little uh-huh. bit even more new-agey type restaurant up in Topanga, but it's all outdoor huh. seating. And we went last week when it was super hot, and so it was, it's just beautiful. You sit there, and it's like you're in another world with the stream wow. rolling by and, and all these oak trees and everything. It's called Inn of the Seventh Ray. If you haven't been there, take your wife, get a babysitter, and, definitely and, and, and go. It's, uh, it's, really, it's really a very romantic and nice restaurant. So that would be, that's my, my favorite restaurant at the moment.
0: Sounds great. And what's your favorite place? in Los Angeles, whether it's a, a street or a neighborhood? Just
1: yesterday, I took a hike and I even posted on Facebook that it's still my favorite. So I, I, you know, we're all sort of trying to do exercise this this, this year during the pandemic and trying to find places. Sure. That, and so I found a place up Mandeville Canyon that is very steep, that doesn't have a lot of people. And so I've been going there, but I decided this time to go back to my old favorite, which is Sullivan Canyon. Ah. It's off of Mandeville. If you go Mandeville and up West Ridge to the left there, and if you look it up, Sullivan Canyon, it's a beautiful, beautiful canyon that sort of has a steady rise, and a lot more people do bikes now than used to be just walkers there, and it's very beautiful, secluded, quiet, a little bit lush, which you don't get so much in in L.A., and that would be my go-to place. Uh, shh, don't, don't tell too many people. It might get too crowded. No, Well, I,
0: I think my wife has done that, and we've called it Westridge. Is that is, is the Westridge Trail different from Sullivan Canyon? So Westridge is
1: it... Trail is, is the ridge on top of Sullivan Canyon. If you go left down into ah. the canyon, sort of parallel to Mandeville, so at the bottom of that canyon, that's Sullivan Canyon.
0: Last question. Uh, as I mentioned, I am the parent of uh, a young daughter, and we have another on the way. You are the parent of three children. My last question is... What is your best parenting advice, <laughs> either that you have been given or that is an original to you? Now that you've spent a year with your three children, it's
1: it's, t- <laughs> living, it's tough when you when you home. raise when you raise the kids. You you think you've done everything right, and then they turn sixteen to twenty, and then you realize you did everything wrong, and then you hope after. <laughs> After five or ten years, it's you've done everything right again. We'll we'll see. So we're we're now in the stage where we did everything wrong, according to some of our kids. Uh, so I'm not sure I should be giving advice right now. I'm not not feeling overconfident. But you know, I think you're about to have a uh, second kid. That's and right. From one to two, I think people always say you know it's a big, it's a big leap because. Yeah, when it's and two to three is is also a big leap because then you're outmanned by them, so you need an extra pair right. of hands.
0: I've heard zone coverage versus man on man.
1: Yeah, right. but I would say, I mean, you've been through it once. That first year is so incredible, where they change every week, and yeah. uh, you just have to sort of take that all in. I guess don't do what we do. The third kid, you have to remind yourself to keep taking pictures and video, <laughs> otherwise they accuse you of neglect later on uh, because the first yeah, kid right. every minute was videoed, I'm sure, and the. It'll be as long as the first kid's around, they're videoed, and if you have a third, it's sort of, uh, whatever, I'm tired of all that. So yep. you have to be careful with that. Let your wife make most of the decisions, I would say, that was, <laughs> that's the other piece well, of advice. Well, as we said before, <laughs> she,
0: she's the USC law graduate, so yes. we've got lots of Randy's allegiances in the house. Um, so yeah, I, I do plenty of listening to her good judgment. Yes. So. Uh, Randy, thank you so much for joining us today. You're very welcome. Um, for all you have done for the, in the world of international art law <laughs> and for all you've done for uh, the city of Los Angeles and the Holocaust Museum. And thank you for joining the supporting cast.